Hello, and welcome to Barks Remarks, the podcast where we talk about the stories from the legendary Carl Barks, creator of Scrooge McDuck and writer and artist of the greatest Donald and Scrooge comics of all time. Join us as we explore his longer adventure stories in their chronological publishing order. We'll talk about what makes them so enduring, their historical context, and how well they hold up today. So get out your reprint and get ready to enjoy our remarks. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Bark's Remarks, the podcast where we talk about the long-form adventure stories of the legendary Carl Barks. We've got a great episode today all about a very notable uh, story called The Magic Hourglass. I'm going to ask my returning guest host to introduce himself. I'm Mark Warren Harmon back again. Glad to be here again and uh, really looking forward to this story. Being a longtime Barks collector and duck collector, this story painted so many different dimensions of the ducks and, and a, a, a storyline that deserves talking about. Yeah, this is a fascinating one. I'm, I'm going to just say kind of right off the bat that I have kind of a, a I think a complicated experience with this one. You know, I first read this in that big Donald Duck collection um, that was printed in the late 70s. I, I don't remember what it was called, but but it presented like 10 of his most notable kind of golden age comics. And um, this one, it really stood out as like very dark compared to a lot of the others. You know, it was it was one of the only two stories in that collection that featured Scrooge McDuck, who I, I had already had a lot of experience with his comics. And um, Scrooge is so unsympathetic for, for so much of this story that it, it, it made it a hard story to love. And I feel like I, I went back to this one less frequently than I did the other stories in that collection. I hadn't read this story myself for quite some time. I remember having that same feeling when I read it again. And Scrooge McDuck is not the Scrooge we want to admire. He's the the character that we really want to try to understand. And, and while this story dives a bit into his past, which other stories do, but a little bit different origin story, if you will, about his wealth, I think we are exposed to a Scrooge that isn't likable. And that bothers yeah. me. And also the, the fact that some of that early on, there's this unlikability with Donald and the nephews as well, and I'm really uncomfortable with that. But I think the story needs to expose itself to pay that off. Right. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And, and when I think about the stories that I don't always enjoy as much, they're, they're often the stories where I don't find the ducks very likable. And you're right. There are some some parts of the story where they're less likable than others. Um, I think most everyone is is mostly redeemed by the end. But but this is a dark and challenging story. I will go ahead and say off the bat that I I do still think that this is a great story. I don't love it in a way where I consider it a personal favorite. But but I have this experience with like media sometimes with books or movies where I, I feel like I can recognize something as great, even if I don't have a personal love for this one. Mm -hmm. and I don't love it either, but I respect it a lot. And I, I respect what Barks is saying here. And there is a maturity of him at 49 years old when he wrote this, um, when he was, again, in that, what we you, you and I have called that great period of storytelling that he was in. But this one's a this one you have to wrap your head around and understand what's happening uh, in the country, in the world. You know, and then and then this is a children's story. This isn't a children's comic, and it's so far beyond that. Yeah. Yeah, this one has some very um, mature themes for sure, and it has a lot to say about the world at the time. So so let's go ahead and get into it. I, I know we've got a we probably have a lot to say about this one because more than more than most comics, this one says um, I mean, most of his comics have a lot to say about culture and and society, but it's it's more often it's meant to be inferred. And, and there's there's more text than subtext here. I think so. So, Agreed. so this, uh, the magic hourglass, you mentioned this was published. This has a cover date of July, 1950. And we're, uh, we're way up into four color 291. Is that right? That's right. Okay. 
Um, this one's been reprinted fairly often, Warren. We've got uh, eight of them, counting the first printing in the United States. And it's a longish story. It's not one of his longest. It's 28 pages. Also had a uh, wonderful paperback follow-up um, not too many years ago uh, that came out in the comic stores. I remember I, I looked at that and went, all right, I already have this one. I have the four-color issue. I've got it reprinted a few times. I didn't really want to buy it in a format that took it out of its original panel structure, but but it's been reprinted and yeah. maybe for a lot of good reasons. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very notable. I will I will add this if that's okay. It's on a, on a fun side before we dive into the story. Uh, four color two ninety one, uh, and then a, of course uh, the next duck story bed top bedlam number three hundred had the unique unique quality of being uh, the first. To uh, the, of the animated covers the, of the which there were a total of seven and Walt Disney had I think three or four in there uh, two Donald for sure I think one Mickey maybe two yeah so I I recorded an episode Warren for Big Top Bedlam before doing this one and I saw that um, I didn't encounter it for this one because I didn't uh, I didn't look up the original four color one but. I was I was talking with my brother who joined me for that one about how I I wasn't entirely sure of how that worked. I don't know if you're meant to like wear it as a mask or something, but um, but how how's that cover supposed to work? Well, if you look at the cover of the original book, I believe it's got the shark coming out of the water, and there's a little uh, dotted line around the shark's mouth that you're supposed to uh, you encourage the kids to go grab their scissors and cut out that, and then. Um, move it up and down to gotcha. cause that animated effect. So it's all effect, and it's all just a way to engage the kids. But nice. uh, all the same concept, but interesting. Yeah, that's very fun. Um, thanks for mentioning that. So, boy, Warren, I like to talk when we do this episode. You know, part of what interests me, of course, is the story. Um, part of what interests me is the culture that it came out of. You could, um, you could go on and on about the cultural context for this one, but... Um, I know that you and I both read the the book. We both read the book called Carl Barks and the Disney Comic Unmasking the Myth of Modernity by Thomas Andre. Um, it, it's an interesting book. He talks a lot about some of the stories, and he talks more about this one than, than many of the others. And I, I don't always agree with what he is reading out of these stories, but, but in this case, in the case of this one, I think he really hit it right on the money. Because after, after I read reread this one, I was like, wow, this one really has a lot to say about, about capitalism, about imperialism, about the U.S. involvement in the Middle East. I think that probably sounds heady and a little bit too cerebral for like a funny animal comic. But if, if you read this story with that mindset, it's it's almost unmistakable how much this is about. This this has the subtext of American involvement in the Middle East and, and resource extraction and wealth and, and everything. It does. We're looking at 1950. We're five years past the end of the Second World War. Not only is America booming, but it's also becoming more involved in the Middle East and oil reserves and making deals with the Saudi Arabians. And all of this is happening. Uh, it's new for America. There is a lot of prosperity that's being promised. There's a lot of building going on, uh, as is so apparent in the opening panel. Yeah. Uh, but yes, this is a story about excess, certainly greed, not just the imperialism and capitalism of our culture or the American society, but also of the underground uh, shake. And again, I read this story for the first time, and it was an adventure story. It has shades of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It has shades of The Mummy, uh, the Brendan yeah. Fraser film. It has shades of all these little wonderful adventures, but there's it's so much deeper than that. Yeah, you, you know what this really reminded me of, actually, in, in a sequence, was the old Gottfriedson Mickey Mouse comic, uh, Mickey Joins the Foreign Legion. You know, that, yeah. that, that was a trope um, back into, I think, the, the 20s, 30s, 40s, into the 50s that we don't really have anymore. You know, there no. was this like romanticization and, and Donald and the kids don't join the Foreign Legion, but the little excursion that they have, it to me is really reminiscent of what Mickey did in that comic, but 
that that was that was one of those genres of itself. There was this like American fascination with running away, escaping, and joining the usually it was the French Foreign Legion. It and was, having, and that that was popular not only with in the comics that in in Godfredson's story with Mickey, but it was also very popular in in the short comedies with Laurel and Hardy and the Three Stooges. They yeah. did the same. Yeah, and it was about going to a better life and getting a better. A start, uh, and it was also yeah, it was it was very popular, right? And, and so I think we'll get into this, but when you read this, you have to see that you have to think of that red sand that they're going to be thinking of as a metaphor for oil. Yes, right? um, this is an extremely turbulent time in the Middle East. The 1950s historically is when the countries across the Middle East were essentially trying to assert their control over their own resources and you know try and try and shake out the old imperialist ties that had entrenched themselves and and as you said America was in this new era of prosperity and it was very focused on where it was going to secure these resources so you had this push and this pull of these countries wanting to understandably, um, be masters of their own destiny with their own resources. Uh, and then uh, um, the United States and other powers um, really mucking about the, the CIA is heavily involved in, in things like deposing the Shah um, or, or rather propping up the Shah of Iran. Thomas Andre talks about this being near the time that um, Saudi Arabia uh, successfully asserted control over much of its oil. So that that is what I think we're supposed to think about. Or at least, you know, Barks, we talk about how he was reading National Geographic. He he was also reading the news. How mm-hmm. how could he not? Yeah. Back then it was it was major story in the news, especially how the interests in foreign lands were becoming interested in American investment, and uh, and, and you've mentioned too with the uh, with the uh, clandestine affairs of yeah. government and whatever. It's difficult to separate that. But as a as a ten year year old or a twelve year old child, I'm not so sure that's what the intention was. <laughs> but I give Barks a whole lot of credit for for sharing his his take on what was happening in the world. You know, when you think about him too, he was making minimum wage or he was making a, a honest salary. Uh, he was going through multiple bad times in his own life at this stage. He was getting closer to his second divorce and, uh, and he's making comments on wealth and excess and capitalism. You have to imagine money was never never far from his mind, but he but he obviously had some some really interesting ideas about wealth that come out yes, in this did. in this story. Yeah. All right, lot, lots to say. So so let's let's do it. We're we're going to go through the structure, the plot of Magic Hourglass, but I, I have no doubt we're going to take a few little side detours to just talk about what it all means but but i i don't want to lose sight of the fact that this is is a really interesting um and memorable story even even without those baked in elements Mm -hmm. so on the first page you you had alluded to the the opening panel which has the ducks surveying um duckburg which is just being incredibly developed, right? It's it's skyscrapers and it's a bustling port and the ducks are admiring it. And Donald is, um, when, when the nephews talk about what a swell view of the city it is, he goes out of his way to say that it's a swell view of some of his Uncle Scrooge's property. And and this is kind of the first little disturbing bit. To, to me, it's disturbing, right? This is the story that he wants to tell. But the ducks are in this kind of weird debate over, you know, their closeness to their Uncle Scrooge. Donald is bragging about how his uncle owns all of these properties and you know he lists all of the types of industries and the nephews are are taking offense at this because they're like you know he's our uncle too even if we're more distant and um they accuse him of scrooge not really liking him very much because he he's never given him anything and they point out that he did give them a dime once so one time once yes yeah, so so this is the setup, right? This is the conflict between the ducks. But what really stands out is that we've just looked at this. We've just seen this panel that that represents Duckburg and wealth. 
but it really represents capitalism and and the that idea of mid-century American progress. Beautifully done too. I I, I really do love that splash panel. I, I I I remember that one as a kid as probably one of my favorites because it it it, it showed me a Duckburg that I had not imagined, a Duckburg of the future. You can see just the modern looking uh, structures. Yeah. And 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 you're right. I think this also immediately sets off this battle or competition between you know who likes me best. And uh, yeah, well said. Um, but even though they gave him the dime, Donald still implies or, or basically insists that he still likes me the best. We go to the next page and we see now we're, we're cutting back to Uncle Scrooge. He's in his modest kitchen, as they say. I love the first panel. And I think this is where it kind of sets up this whole destiny story here, because this is a story about destiny. As the nephews are arguing, they, they show the chicken with destiny across the belly on the, on the yeah. nest. And we know what's coming. Immediately, we see uh, Scrooge with this hourglass that he uses to time his eggs. And, and he goes through the panel. And in, what, what struck me about this particular page is not so much the fact that the the eggs did not come out the way he wanted them to because they should be with this with this hourglass. It's it's the little symbols everywhere in the kitchen and on the table that have dollar signs on them or, yeah. or paintings with coins in them. Again, emphasizing this importance of wealth, at least in Uncle Scrooge's mind. But the eggs did not come out well, and uh, he immediately blames it on this old hourglass. It's worthless time to get rid of it. Right. As soon as this hourglass fails to time his, his soft-boiled egg perfectly, he's ready to, to give it the heave-ho. And there's a lot in, in where he got the hourglass, right? Because he oh, it references some yeah. of his beginnings as a poor cabin boy on a cattle boat. These are details that like are going to come in later that Rosa is going to use. He mentions buying it in a thieves market in Morocco. So we kind of suss out that this was, was stolen at some point. And he knew it at the time. I think right. this is what's important is to know that. So he bought it intentionally in a thieves market. And it makes you kind of wonder where, where his identity will come from. Right. And and this is a big part of why the story off puts me immediately. Right. Because we've got this version of Uncle Scrooge that I don't like. You know, right. he's, he's a scoundrel. He's villainous, if not an outright villain. And, you know, we, we haven't even talked about the fact that I'm sure it offends you the way it offends me, the notion that Scrooge's wealth was a result. We're going to learn later that, you know, this is a lucky talisman, basically, that, that brought him his wealth. And, and Barks, you know, he's going to etch a sketch that away. But so we can accept that this is not canon, but, but this is a Barks story, you know, and, and he obviously hadn't developed the character. He hadn't even if he changes him up all the time, going forward, by the time we get to only a poor old man and others, we, we know that he's hard-hearted and he's miserly, but he at least has this decent core. Um, yes. So this this is very, like, upsetting, I think, to, to a big fan of the, quote, the real Scrooge McDuck. So, do, you think, do you think that Barks was, was playing with his character development at this point and yeah. not quite sure himself? Yeah, exactly. He hadn't he hadn't landed on that yet. You know, he's kind of vacillating back and forth because in in Voodoo Hoodoo, he's he's again, scoundrel, uh, villainous. Um, but but in in the old castle secret, his second adventure length appearance, you know, he was much closer to what he would end up being. So, yeah, we're we're kind of vacillating back and forth. And this is definitely towards that scoundrel side. So on that next page, Warren, we go through some of his morning routine where he's checking up on his industries. And he learns from a report that he has a fishing boat called the Junk 2 that is not worth the powder to blow it up and he can't sell it. And so he has these two items that are upsetting him, that are worthless. They don't perform their function anymore. And so, right. so he decides that he's going to summon his nephews and um, he's going to kind of do, you know, he's going to kill two birds with one stone. And he presents, he presents the junk to, to Donald, who is overjoyed. That's right. He and, immediately becomes... Uh extremely joyful that he has now been proven to be the favorite right and, and the nephews are are thinking that they're they're going to get a better deal than him 
Um, and why don't you take us on to that next page? Yeah, so they're they're a little humbled, and they're looking up at him and, and graciously waiting for their gift. And there, Scrooge masks this, uh, you know, his disappointment in the hourglass is this charming old hourglass, and gives it to them. And, of course, the next panel, they're walking away. The boys are sulking. Donald's just absolutely having a field day, saying that he got the better of the of the deal. So immediately the kids start just wailing and moaning while Donald uh, goes off to uh, see what kind of boat was left to him. Notices that the junk too is uh, not in terrific shape and laying on its side uh, in the harbor. So that's where we end up. Right. The junk too lives up to its name. I, I guess there is a type of boat that is called a junk, right? It's a Chinese ship, I think. So it's well, not... was a term for a, for a, for a, ship out of Asia. Correct? Right. So it's not that weird that, it, that there's at least plausible deniability. Um, <laughs> so so on the next page, you know, Don, it's Donald's turn to sulk about it, but but he he consoles himself by thinking, "Oh, at least it's better than the hourglass the kids got." And then a man strides up to him purposefully and and this is a gag that Barks goes to a few times, right? Because I, I saw this in the the man presents him with the bill for dock rent and, and obstructing navigation. So this this is just like the houseboat that they got in uh, Terror of the River. And I think there's at least one other period where um, someone gets a boat and, and they're on the hook for for dock fees. <laughs> they get they get the bill thrusted in their face. That's right. Right. So um, we transition back to the nephews who decide that it's not worth it to do anything with the hourglass. Um, and they they seek out a junk man, but he tells them it's not even worth a dime. Uh, and, and he kind of casually says, don't try to tell me that it's a magic hourglass just because of what's written on top of it. Yeah, and, and, and right away, one of the nephews glances down at the etchings, which we see in the drawing, and there's definitely something on there. And uh, they don't know what it is. They probably never saw it, or if they did, they thought it was a decoration. But the uh, the peddler on with the cart on the street just happens to know exactly what it says, which is great. It just kicks right into the story. Yeah, he's fluent in, uh, in ancient, ancient Arabic. Ancient Arabic. <laughs> and uh, it just says, as long as this glass keeps perfect time, its owner will be grow richer hour by hour. And then he, that's nonsense. So he just says, here, boys, I'm not interested. But I love that next frame because immediately the nephews sense that that's how Uncle Scrooge got rich. Just like that. And the peddler moves it off down the road, um, says that only it only takes this special sand. And that special sand is a red sand that is only found in the Sahara Desert in Africa. And so, um, but they... Now they're troubled because they don't know how they're going to get there. And immediately they realize that Donald was given a boat. Right. And he does specify the name well, of the place, right? No Isa. No Isa. But uh, the uh, little territory or the little area within the Sahara where that, that red sand only exists. And, of course, one can take those two words. No Isa is, well, it, <laughs> it's, no, it isn't. <laughs> right. Yeah, this, that's a very Barksian um, place name. So we have this neat little transition here where Barks, um, his narrator box, represents them burying the hatchet by presenting a, a literal buried hatchet. I love that frame a lot. <laughs> I yeah, just it's, think it's great. <laughs> it's cute because they're they're um, they're trying to figure out. They've got a, a, a purpose now. They're like, okay, we, we should try to fill the hourglass, but how are we going to get there? We don't have the money to repair my boat. So they land on the idea that um, maybe there's a little bit of magic left in the hourglass, and they decide to try and close their eyes and and feel where the hourglass is going to direct them. And you know, it's, it's interesting to me, Warren, there's a lot of these stories like this where there's this faith in a sort of magical lucky amulet. When you think about how often Barks talked about like wealth and hard work, there's, there's a surprising amount of this stuff. Too. They, they creep up often. That's correct. And right. we also see that, that of course, without Gladstone in this in the story, we see shades of what Gladstone would ex experience, too. Uh, and there's this fine line between magic and luck, I think, in this story. But you're right. They, they go, they close their eyes, and they walk down the pier. And uh, 
they're not aware of it, but they end up actually falling right into the water. And I love the action under the water because they see danger immediately with the two approaching sharks. And then once the sharks hit the dock, knock themselves out, get groggy, the uh, nephews um, immediately jump to the conclusion that the hourglass brought them bad luck. Uh, but Donald becomes very resourceful immediately and uh, immediately sees an opportunity here to transform uh, these two into a way to salvage the boat. <laughs> I want to point out, too, uh, before we move on to that great next panel, that there's there's something happening here with the dialogue. This is, the I think, the second time that one of the nephews says, man, man, and I and I don't know where that came from, even this popular jargon of, of teenage kids those, in those days. But Yeah, there's some, some odd bits of dialogue that kind of are striking in this one. Yeah, it's just a little side thing that I noticed. Uh, you're right. That next panel is pretty spectacular it shows the results of the ducks having harnessed the two sharks to the junk too and um they are crossing the ocean on shark power with donald cracking the whip to direct them the 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 narrator box needs to be read out loud it says father neptune has seen some strange ships cross his broad oceans but none stranger than the argosy of the fortune hunting ducks uh, it's it's a crazy panel it's um it's ridiculous but it's I, I i love it it's it's an it's a wonderful panel and we transition at this point to back to uncle scrooge in his offices he's getting in these reports of his businesses going catastrophically broke wells running dry mines running out of gold he is beside himself trying to figure out what's going on yeah he can't figure it out and he's sulking at his desk and he just says he was making money all the time up until that morning what happened and it just as he scratches his head and tries to figure it out he remembers the fact that it may have been or might have been that hourglass. He's, so he bolts out of the office, runs through Duckburg. He said that old hourglass was the secret of my good luck. And that is his realization that his lifetime of wealth was due to that hourglass. But he never believed it. Right. And that's a, that's a key point right there that he never believed in a moment that that was it. But he's sure of it now that he's going broke while it's missing. Right. So, so we know that he... Uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I, I was just going to say we know that we know that he did know about the legend, right? It's not something he he was aware of it. He was aware of the legend, I'm sure, when he bought the hourglass, and he was aware of it, but he never really thought about it. But he races up to Donald's house and raps on the door and says, "Open up! I've got a whole dime here, a new right. dime." to pay you for that hourglass he wants it back desperately yeah not desperately enough to to offer a market value for it which which is gonna which is gonna come back to bite him on the next page he learns from a neighbor that the nephews have indeed headed back to africa so he knows exactly what's going on that they're gonna be um trying to fill the hourglass and we we transition right away to a seaport on the coast of morocco um it's a really nice drawing of of that coast and, and a, a pretty bustling city behind um we've got a really cool panel here of him desperate and, and sobbing at uh, i guess i'm sure some industrious person has calculated his fortune based on what he says here that if he's losing a billion dollars a minute he'll be broke in 600 years um that's probably one of a few times where you could actually point try and calculate how much money he has not that you can ever find anything consistent right right and so he does spy a speck on the horizon that resolves into a ship so we know that scrooge sees the ducks approach and then we transition back to them they've they've nicknamed the sharks i, I think i didn't mention that one of them is named Samson, and uh, I don't remember. Does, does the other one is Caesar. Caesar and Samson. Caesar yes. and Samson. They call out Samson quite a bit in the story. I right. think that's one. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. At the very end, that's when he said they say, "Whoa, Caesar! Whoa, Samson! Whoa, Caesar!" <laughs> um, but Donald gets Shanghai. He gets captured immediately by a couple of thugs that Scrooge has hired. Right. So this is this is part of that pretty villainous behavior that Scrooge participates in and um, part of what makes yeah. him pretty despicable in this one. Well, I think so. And, and, and he immediately wants to use brute force to uh, get that hourglass back. And we don't know how he's going to do it. So we're really compelled to turn the page. But before we do that, I wanted to ask you, Mark, if this was the first time we see uh, Scrooge McDuck traveling outside of Duckburg to a, to a global destination, because he is now in Morocco. I know he went on adventures with the nephews. This is a little 
different. He's out there to get the nephews to to basically. Yeah, you're right. I because we we'd highlighted that um in in his earlier stories mm-hmm. where he participated, he had generally sent the ducks off like in Trail of the Unicorn. So yeah, good good catch. This might well be. I think this is his first venture out of Duckburg. Unfortunately, it isn't in partnership with the nephews. It's 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 uh, to really track them down. And and as these thugs bring Donald to Scrooge, uh, uh, he uh, Donald insists that the hourglass is not for sale anymore. And so uh, they embark on a form of humorous torture. It's the only thing I could think of here with the feather uh, tickling Donald, which I think is fun. Um, and he's laughing hysterically and says. Um, so you won't sell that hourglass peaceably. Yes, yes. It's, it's okay. Let's go aboard. And so he finally gets tired of being tickled and Scrooge follows him on board where they realize that the hourglass is gone, but so are the nephews. Scrooge points out that they, uh, they've they gone ashore. Donald loves every minute of it. Right. The, the tickle torture bit is, um, it's funny, but it's also disturbing, right? Because I think it's supposed to be an analog for, this is a, a kid's comic, but but Scrooge is really compelling him here. So, um... well, no, no question about it. I think to to get the point across, any other form of getting Donald to talk would not have worked for the kids. I think this was really an important way to say, yeah, it's still unfortunate that Scrooge is doing this, but it it, it was done in a way that I think is more right. humorous. You're going to do it. A little more. I don't humorous. like it either. Because I think this is showing a side of Scrooge I do not like at all. So so the next page is all about Donald having separated himself and trying to find the nephews before Scrooge and his minions do. And this is really, um, it's set in Morocco. And this is that, that old trope of North Africa. You know, it's it's the North Africa of like Casablanca and, and, and the French Foreign Legion stories. Um, it's a very mysterious place full of like unsavory people, right? It's it's very stereotypical, and and um, Donald is nervous, and he gets caught by who he thinks is a thug, but is really the nephews in disguise. So they're yeah. able to they're able to get away, but it's just an interesting little sojourn into into that kind of stereotype of of Morocco. Yeah, you see a lot of that in the in the 1943 film Casablanca with the CD characters and in that part of the world. Um, and here we're seeing it again. And I love that most of that page is done in shadow mm-hmm. and it's uh, done at night. Adds a bit of mystery to it. But the good news is that the nephews and Donald can now go off. And the next morning, there they are on these on these beautiful panels that depict the Sahara Desert. Um, they're basically uh, waiting for what to do next. They, they know they need to find where Noisa is and the red sand. But they don't dare ask anybody because they have a feeling that Scrooge has his fingers in everything now. Uh, then they're approached by this mysterious soldier, he looks like to me. Uh, turns out to be a sheikh, but a soldier on top of a camel. And uh, speaks fluent English. Uh, there's no broken English here or anything like that. But he also knows that the ducks are in trouble. And Donald immediately gets on the defensive and wants to know why. He says, well, I heard about you from your Uncle Scrooge. So, again, Scrooge has been talking and right. wanting, wanting his nephews captured or detained and this is my classic donald fighting pose i love it yeah. uh with, it's just it's just super classic uh so that you won't take us without a fight you get to see the first real close-up of this face this menacing face you don't know if he's good or evil i really didn't know but he immediately says there he is not interested in any reward he wants to recruit them as mercenaries for him as as soldiers in his his cause and now we know that there's this battle going on, or at least we get this, the beginnings of this battle between these two. Yeah, th- this is really fascinating to me for, for a few reasons, right? Because this guy, first off, he's, he's a human. Mm-hmm. You know, most, most of these Moroccan characters are humans. They're, they're really drawn and, and represented in a pretty refreshing way to me. Because as you said, there's no broken English here. Um, this guy has total agency. Yep. And he feels like he is a real person to me in in it in a place with its own history and he has his own like motivations i i like this sequence a lot like you said he's very dark mysterious and this is the part that remind you know this is the the foreign legion the character joined the foreign legion trope because that's not what exactly what this is but it might as well be because like you said they're mercenaries now they're they're riflemen and and they need to this this guy his trading caravan it seems that every time he crosses a certain stretch of desert they get attacked 
by this ambush, and we're going to learn that those people, he's convinced that they are coming from that legendary oasis of Noiza or Noisa, um, right. and that he wants the ducks to help protect the caravan. And yes. so they come to a, there's this fun back and forth, you know, where he seems like he might be crazy because he, he says it does exist. He says it doesn't. It, it gives us this nice tantalizing, you know, idea about mm-hmm. about the raiders and the place and they come to this empty patch of desert um and he, he tells them to be very watchful at this point yeah and, and he says you'll and this is where they're looking out at this vast desert and uh um you'll so you'll still you'll soon see the raiders um uh, coming from any other place and immediately they go down to the uh to the base of the ridge where they find this watering hole for the camels and um they are i think now it's ex- being accepted as members of their caravan uh the ducks seem relaxed now and as night falls it says in the second frame on the next page it's getting quiet it's it's that quiet before the storm and immediately we see these panels that unveil the attack uh the raiders they're asked to uh kind of strategically uh aim where the where the gun flash is coming from but the nephews are know a little bit more and they're saying well no we have to follow the action so there's a little little tactical uh, strategy which i like them employing and of course one of the bullets from the nephews goes right past one of the uh, raiders and they start running off yeah so this this is a pretty intense battle right this this is a gunfight these are real bullets this, yeah this is this is where someone could get hurt this would not yeah. be allowed um you know to be printed this way in story that was submitted in in the modern comics disney now has like strict guidelines about this kind of thing. Ah, okay um, it, but it's really interesting and it's very exciting um even if it's still a little bit cartoonish but you know the 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 basic gist of the next page is that um after the battle after the ducks have successfully contributed and to the safety of the caravan. The leader there, that sheikh or whoever he is, you know, he yep. thanks them, he gives them a reward, and they separate to go in search of the oasis. And mm-hmm. he wishes them luck, and he um, cautions them not to go anywhere without a water bag. And, right. And and that's going to be obviously very important. Uh, you're always, you always need to be thinking about water in the desert as someone who... Um, who spent a decade and a half in in Arizona? I, I still have trouble going anywhere without a bottle of water, reflexively. And we feel the ducks' loneliness immediately, and we feel the vastness of the desert that they are now alone in. Yes, and they they absolutely uh, see that. And as they are going away, they they see a lame camel kind of in the distance wandering, and they are suddenly encouraged to follow that camel it may lead them to something positive maybe water uh, or something and it is the, the camel leads them back to where they were into that oasis donald isn't happy about that but the boys are resting and they're everything's kind of peaceful now but they immediately recognize that the camel that they had followed back to that watering hole is gone it's vanished they don't know where it is so the ducks look over and they look over at the water and they notice some bubbles that are coming up from this at the surface and they realize immediately that uh the camel um is probably wandered into the water and that's where they begin the pursuit here right and and i like this element a lot this is one of my favorite parts where it really takes this mysterious cool turn right because they've realized that the, the camel must have been trained to do this yes and and they they swim down and they discover this uh, subterranean passage, this waterway that leads them to what they call a natural subway. We get this neat little narrator box that describes it as a channel of one of the Sahara's underground rivers that supply the oasis. This this really like sparked my imagination as I when I read this as a child. I remember. Well, I remember Mark too. I'll just add to that that it reminds us both of of when the unicorn when they discover the unicorn when they go through into Shangri La. It's this discovery of this land that didn't exist, and it's that's what as a child I just remember it just brought joy to me that they're in this new land this this adventure is, is continuing now in an unexpected place yeah yeah well said it's it's that great like entry moment that barks is so good at right the, yeah. that yes. first glimpse of the hidden civilization or, or society or whatever and, and this isn't quite a civilization but they they 
stumble upon an underground palace. It seems to be pretty well populated. It has a bunch of the old, like, Middle East tropes. You know, it's got the veiled woman um, that seems to be like a concubine. And um, we get the perspective of a couple of the raiders who are talking about how their sheikh is furious because the raid on the caravan was beaten off. This sheikh is the the other sheikh. I'll call him the the not so nice sheikh who and uh, tells his uh, men to go uh, bathe and cleanse yourselves because you're unsanitary. But bathe in the red sand that brings good fortune. It's the first time we see now the origin that the sand is going to be here. We see it immediately then in this wonderful pile. And these 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 three guys walk over there kind of sulking like, oh boy, you know, I hate to take a bath. It's beautiful. It's good humor. But then the next frame, we don't see them, uh, but we do see the nephews and Donald as they approach. Donald has this quick plan to fill the hourglass and leave immediately. Well, um, I always wondered, come on, Donald, you're at the base of the of the sand, just fill it and get out. Sure. But no, he climbs to the top, and the humor starts there with the um, uh, clunking the one of the men on the head. Who they all pop up and they uh, they capture Donald, seize them, and bring them to the to the uh, sheikh who. Um, says that they all came from America to find the oasis of Noisa, and he's not happy at all, so he wants to um, basically take the hourglass back. Right. He he demands an explanation. And the ducks, Donald, um, he, he's not thinking very quick. He tells the truth. He shows him the hourglass, and, and the guy recognizes it immediately right. as an old talisman from, again, we got one of these silly uh, Barks names, Hazan Hada Haircut, um, a magician <laughs> centuries ago. And uh, he references that it was lost, and you know, it's been, it's been, or it's about to be refilled. So they immediately get their version of good luck coming to them. Um, because one of the, one of his men references that are Uncle Scrooge's caravan, which appears to be very rich, is approaching the waterhole. And so they abandon the ducks and they go off to raid that caravan. Uh, and I think they, they believe they're undefeatable at this time because he's now got the magic talisman and he's holding the hourglass. Leaves the ducks alone. Right. Um, and and this this is kind of a weird little trope, right? The the raiders bathing in sand. Um it's it's funny, but uh but it's it's pretty weird. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 very different. And uh, we're about to go into this sequence where the hourglass is basically gonna start to change hands. Um that's, that's gonna great. characterize most of the rest of this. So Scrooge, uh, the next panel, we see Scrooge with his caravan that he's bought, and he's um, regrets being stingy old fool, but I'm going to make up for it, uh, my past mistakes. And, and right now he knows that he's got a saddlebag filled with a billion dollars to pay those boys for the hourglass. So he's now feeling he's doing better than a dime. Or he's more. learned uh, some of a lesson. Anyway, I think, again, I just can't help but think they're forgetting their family, but I guess this is how this family operates. So the raiders come out at night and they start uh, attacking. They use a term here that I had not heard before. Watertight covers are removed from their guns. Breech locks are clicked. I really love the, the paying attention to the detail of the of the armory. Barks realizes that the gun, guns would not work if they were submerged in water. It is a uh, cool detail. Yeah, the raid was on. Of course, the last panel shows uh, one of those bullets flying through uh, Scrooge's hat. Yeah, th this little sequence where the raiders emerge looks very cool, right? Mm -hmm. This this is a bit of a payoff to me. It's the little mystery of how the raiders have been attacking the caravan so mysteriously. And we, we already knew how it was working, but it was neat to see it play out. And now we know that they're emerging from the water, and that's that, that silhouette panel is really quite nice. Yeah, and, and so, you know, the, the fight is really one-sided. Uncle Scrooge's, his, his hired men are routed. I like that neither of these groups of characters are really caricatures. You know, they're not... This is a kinder depiction than he'd do in a lot of these stories. And, you know, they're, the raiders now are reaping the, the good luck, right? Because they've got Scrooge's billion dollars. They've got the rich supplies from his camp. And they're celebrating this, holding the hourglass aloft. And, uh, and Donald, Donald sneaks in at the end of the page and he snatches it back and flees for his life. So here the hourglass is now back with Donald, and uh, they are hiding in the desert again as we see the um, the rebel, or not the rebels, but the uh, the caravan, the kind of sulking away now without the hourglass. 
the uh, the talisman, the the hourglass. It actually has this power apparently to make people the way they are. And uh, that's not saying that we can say that in this particular story, Scrooge isn't a bit of a bad guy because he is. Yeah. And uh, they're 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 happy now. Donald's got the hourglass, so they're in the desert. Donald holds that hourglass up in the air, kind of like that soldier did, the other, the, the raider. Yeah. And um, now he declares that the whole world is in our power. That's really ominous. And I, and that really bothered me that, the, that he's this, this perhaps evil spell of the hourglass is now back in Donald. But they realize as they walk miles later, they're getting thirsty with the magic hourglass. Anything's possible. We'll just keep walking until we find water. And they walk. And they walk with their eyes closed like they did off the pier. And they see a water bag laying in the sand. Yeah, it's a really cool image, that water bag half buried that they're so excited to see. I think, Warren, that this couple of pages here is the best part of the story. I, I think that this is where greatness lies for this one. Because, you know, at the beginning of the story, he set it up like a moral play, mm -hmm. right? And, and this is where we're getting that moralism coming back and really paying off. Uh, you know, you talked about that power that the hourglass seemed like it was holding over him. And um, that was a great point, And it immediately reminded me of the golden helmet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's the same dynamic where the, the helmet seems to be corrupting otherwise good people. The hourglass does as well. So, yeah, I, I love this next sequence where the ducks are... They're desperate for water. They've just been led by the hourglass to the water bag. And when they pour it, it um, it's gold dust. And Donald kicks the bag away. He cries out that it's nothing but a bag full of old, dry gold dust. They're just disgusted, right? Because the most important thing for them right now is water. And that is literally worthless in their situation. That, that first panel on this page, I think, was the cover art for the old uh, Donald Duck book, too. So that feels like... It was, like... With, with, the, uh, with the tongue hanging out, a very rare depiction of Donald's tongue. Yeah, but that makes it feel lot, iconic to me. <laughs> and and this, this feels like a real monkey's paw situation, right? That's that's the sort of, like, it's, it's one of those be careful what you wish for right. moments, right? Because they've been so focused on riches. It's like... It's like the hourglass is trying to teach them a lesson because after after they encounter this water bag full of gold dust, they see a lake in the distance. Um, and we've been conditioned, I think, to suspect that it may be a mirage, that old desert trope. But in fact, when they dive in, we can tell that it seems to be jewels. And, and they say this line, last one ends an old sp spavined camel. I guess I guess that's like a term for swollen hooves or, or sw swollen feet of a horse. I, I did have to look that up. Okay. <laughs> no, um, but, uh, but here they are all of a sudden given every element that we recognize as great wealth and it isn't good enough for them. It is not what they want. What they want is water. What they want is life. And they they don't see it here. And this is this is where that morality play really does peak. And this is where I love it as well. Donald's thoroughly disgusted in these old hard dry diamonds. You know, makes it a point to call them dry diamonds. Of all the dirty, petrified luck in the world, I mean, he is really having a tough time about this. That's that's a fun line. Yeah, it is. We then see Scrooge turning around and wanting to know what's happened to Donald and the boys. And he starts to get this little regret and he's starting to feel like maybe he's, he needs to go look for them. So he takes what he has is the water bag. He sees that the boys are just absolutely destitute. They're lying in the sand. He knows that they're needing water desperately. And this is where I was hoping we would see just a little ray of Uncle Scrooge, their uncle, coming to the rescue. But he doesn't let another opportunity pass without driving a hard bargain. He thinks to himself about being generous, uh, and I have somebody at my mercy, I drive a hard bargain. And he wants to now trade the water bag for the priceless hourglass. And that look on Donald's face as Scrooge is kind of lifting his head out of the sand, it's priceless as well. So take it, take, here's the, the key part. Yeah, you're right. This is like an opportunity for him to redeem himself. And, and I like that at least initially he did have that motivation. You know, he wanted to check on family. It's only when he realizes he's got them over a barrel that he kind of reverts to that. 
so so on the next page, you know, the ducks, of course, they've just they've already learned their lesson, basically, as as Barks wants them to learn it. So they they accept they make the trade of the worthless hourglass for that priceless water bag because that's what they've just that's what the desert has just taught them and so now we transition back to you know the shoe being on the other foot uh, the the five ducks are walking through the desert donald is is kind of foregrounding the lesson by saying out loud well our dream of riches has gone fooey or fluey <laughs> but so what uh, and a nephew says we're happy and, and scrooge is initially happy as well he's kind of singing but then he starts to get thirsty and he is he progressively offers the ducks more and more for just right. a drink of water and the ducks tell him that they've had a lesson in what things like gold and diamonds are worth and eventually scrooge resorts to what what he feels he has to do to offer them the hourglass back for a drink of water and uh and donald says that they've been he's been waiting to hear you say that and they just give him the water instead yeah. of taking advantage of him. Yeah, I love this part. This is humanity now. Now it's it's you I don't understand, Uncle Scrooge, what, what your greedy nature has done to you. We just wanted to hear you say it. So keep your old hourglass, the water is yours. But with that drink, you have to accept another gift. And this is it's gonna baffle Scrooge, he doesn't know what to think. Remember that fishing boat? Well, he Ed tells Uncle Scrooge, you have, you have to go back on the fishing boat. And we see on that last page of the story, the boys are relishing in it. Scrooge accepts it begrudgingly, I'm sure. But then we see Caesar and Samson taking him back on the big fishing boat again as the story wraps up. And yeah, that's where um, Scrooge now admits that these boys did drive a hard bargain. What did, what did you think about the ending? I, I mean, I like, I like the image of the end. It's a funny inversion to see him riding back on that goofy shark boat. I like the lesson. I like the closing of the morality. It is a little pat to me, right? It, it kind of resolves quickly. I, I think this one, if it had had the like four extra pages, maybe to kind of resolve things that some of the 32 pagers did, it might have yeah, risen yeah. to some of those heights because some of this stuff at the end is a little bit abrupt, um, but, but it's a cool ending. Uh, I, I do think it works pretty well. I did like it. I again, I reading the story again from the points that we've been talking about, and and Barks's comments on on the world at that time and on wealth and greed and excess and capitalism. Uh, it was really deep for me. Um, to that point, I, I find this to be a really good story. Um, I did like the depiction of the of the um, the Saudis. I think that was really respectful and and a little bit of that that history explained. I like the mystery of the, of the Oasis and mm -hmm. uh, the red sand mystery brought it to an adventure level that I thought was great. But I think the big payoff was that, like you were saying, it's, it's that Donald really having the, the wonderful lines at the end about what's important in life. And yeah. so that, that's yeah. what I took away from this. Yeah. I, I, I think you're right. I, I do think that that ending sequence, the sequence right before the end, it, that's the standout for me, you know, where they are, where where they're identifying the riches, the things that we would usually think of as riches as being worthless. That's really memorable. That stands out to me. Like you, I do like the aspect of the Oasis and the Hidden Raiders. There's a lot about this story that works for me. It's hard to get past the, like darkness the 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 sort of like it has a very cynical um yeah. read on on like human nature and it's not just because i don't like to see scrooge in this like outright villainous role you know that those panels where he's got them over the barrel barks goes out of his way to draw his features is very devilish you know he's got yes that, with like, the uh upturned eyes and the pointy yeah oh definitely yeah. does that. It, it's it that's that's kind of upsetting to me um i mean it's his character he can do what he wants of course and we know that he's he's just developing him still but it's weird that there's this darkness in this otherwise really cool story and and it only works because of that darkness but um but yeah it almost feels like if he had done this later um this might have been like a Scrooge and Flintheart Glomgold story. Ah, yeah, a different kind of competition besides yeah. he, because he teams up with the boys, uh, certainly on many more adventures, much more uh, friendly, and uh, they they kind of tag team on their on their pursuit for 
of whatever they're looking for. But this one did, um, again, we said it earlier, I think Carl Barks was experimenting with Scrooge a little bit here. How am I going to develop this character? I'm certainly going to make comments about what's happening in the world, and uh, and I think he does a good job with it. Again, it's probably an important story, and I wouldn't call it one of my favorite feel-good stories, but it's a it's an important story nonetheless in the canon, and I think it has some great great turning points, some great plot points, some wonderful artwork, some some like we pointed out, some of the writing was a little bit, uh, uh, some of the slang was maybe to the times in the early fifties. Uh, all that aside, I think it was a it's a good story. Yeah, you mentioned that wonderful artwork, and I think for me, what stands out on this one that I really like is the expressions are, are what I really remember. The ducks have some great expressions. I, I like just even the one, just kind of jumping into favorite panels, that, that one on the last page with Donald pointing at, at Scrooge. Oh, just, oh, yeah, he's got that same look on his face, almost that Scrooge hat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, it, but it's more determined than devilish, you know, I, I or it's, it's more of a gotcha look. It's a gotcha. It's like, a, definitely a gotcha, yeah. Yeah, this one is... This is a very highly regarded story, talking about, you know, how the community I saw it. that. Yeah. yeah like, was it like number 28 or 27? I couldn't remember. Yeah, as, as of right now, because, of course, these, these are live results, and they fluctuate a little bit, but never too much. Um, it's, it's ranked at 28th on Index, mm-hmm. um, which means, you know, there, there wouldn't be more than a couple of non-Bark stories below that so that's good for an 8.1 so this is like not quite top top tier but it's very high tier Mm -hmm. like you this is not a favorite of mine but i recognize it as a great story just because of what the the kind of the themes that it has are very successfully told um, and it's interesting I just find it a very uncomfortable story. I appreciate that it holds up pretty well for for one that came out in the 1950s and is and is set in um, you know North Africa in the in the Western Sahara because there are a lot of it definitely has some of these like exotic and orientalist tropes but you know that that shake that uh, the man who recruits them he's he's a character with his own perspective and his own history i like that barks alludes to him you know he says you think i'm crazy as a camel driver as the gi's that i freighted for in the war would put it you know that that was just it was one line but it was um it really showed him as like uh an individual so i like that it's refreshing i liked him too he was he, he left on, on a good terms with Donald and the nephews, wishing them luck, uh, gave them the water. So he was, um, he was, he had good intentions. And that's what I liked about that character. And yeah, he was honorable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, and, and it feels, it definitely feels like a real place. This feels like at least his idea, maybe from National Geographic of real world North northwest africa uh do you have any favorite panels that we didn't already kind of highlight warren well i like the i like certainly the opening panel just the the sheer grandness of it sets the stage for what barks is talking about that one is probably my favorite with detail and just welcoming the reader into the story as the story shifts around and and finally moves to north africa i i do like the sahara i like the depiction uh, the camels, I think they're they're accurately uh, drawn. Um, you see a lot of that influence from National Geographic, certainly. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I, that's kind of I'm just drawn by that. Uh, I would say the um, the classic fighting Donald scene. It was something that was just refreshing to see. You don't see that a lot in Bark stories. You see it in other comics, yeah. other depictions. But uh, yeah, I would say that uh, overall. Oh, and then that when we first see Scrooge at his kitchen, I thought that was really interesting. How all the depiction of the dollar signs kept pointing to wealth as something that was was consuming Scrooge in every aspect of his life, including his salt and pepper shakers and his, you know, everything. And I like the fact that the the little side panels, the little uh, what do you call those, were the destiny on the chicken and they buried the hatchet. Those panels were tra- great transitions for the story to keep moving. Yeah, those are kind of my memories of this story. I agree. Those are cool. I, I'd already mentioned that couple of pages or so where they're finding <clears throat> they're finding the worthless riches. 
kind of reminded me of that story where um, Scrooge, I think it was riches, riches everywhere. Um, and, and, you know, he couldn't help but find riches. Um, but that that really stands out. I don't believe this one ever got the oil painting or lithographic treatment. No, this one did not. No. Um, but but this is a really interesting story that demands a careful reread. I think it has a lot of interesting stuff to say about imperialism and and maybe how um, how hollow that search for wealth and that sort of resource extraction that America is. I, I mean, this was America's destiny for the next decades, really. That yeah, that Barb yeah. saw it. They were going to be. We were going to be focused on that red sand. Um, well, here's the here's the irony. Here we're seventy years later. Um, he's using the um, the red sand as an allegory for oil. And just this year, we see this new film uh, come out, "Don't Look Up," which is about the asteroid that's you know aiming toward Earth, which is an allegory to climate change. So we're 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 seeing storytellers really begging the reader to understand what we're doing. And, and Barks was doing this seventy years ago mm-hmm. uh, in a in a fun adventurous way but also with a very important and and meaningful subtext going on in the narrative i I thought it was uh again another another proof that storytelling was his art and he was ahead of his time yeah really spectacular for a a funny animal comic awesome (laughs) thank you so much warren as always for joining me and unpacking this interesting and dark story um really enjoyed it And um, listeners should join us again next time. We're going to be talking about, uh, boy, this is going to take a big left turn. We get to talk about Big Top Bedlam. (laughs) Well, have fun with that one. Um, I I appreciate this. Uh, This was great. Again, an important story to discuss. I'm glad we were able to, uh, you know, review it together. Awesome. Thanks so much. All right. That's a a wrap. Mm -hmm.